as we transition and, and think a little bit about Hebrews 11, I was uh, looking at the news yesterday and I saw an article and it said that the Cavs lost the NBA Finals because they didn't believe. <laughs> okay. It was interesting that basically the whole article was filled with words that described faith. And I thought, man, it's amazing how often unbelievers talk about faith, isn't it? And it's just in our vocabulary. You, know, you need to take a leap of faith. You need to believe in yourself. I can't believe it. But for something that they mention so often, unfortunately, I think they really miss the point of what faith is. When we think about the secular world, they describe faith as the belief in something without any evidence to support that claim. So faith is believing in something when reason and logic and evidence sort of go against that idea. This is why the world believes that faith and science are contradictory, because in their minds, science observes and reasons, whereas faith just assumes. Science in their minds is objective, while faith is subjective. Faith then in the world's eyes is for the weak, who refuse to accept the world for what it is in its cold, hard facts, whereas science uh, it's for the strong who can deal with the way the world really is. Sadly, while we might hope otherwise, things aren't much better in many churches. We just go to the opposite, opposite extreme. Uh, we're told that faith is the, the power to move the hand of God. You know, if I just conjure up enough belief, enough faith, then, then God will do what I ask. You know, I want things, and by faith I can obtain those things. Now, Obviously, we're, we're well instructed here. We know that everything I've said so far about faith is not true. It's unbiblical. But the question is, what does God teach us about faith? What is faith? What is biblical faith? And of course, as Christians, our very first step in answering that question is, well, what does this book say? What does the Bible say? What does God tell us? What is his definition of faith? And we need a, a biblical description of faith. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to to Hebrews chapter 11, will be this morning. And I want to try to set the context for you a little bit. I know you haven't been with me for the first 10 chapters. Um, so I want to kind of bring you up to speed. The Hebrews, they were, they were losing heart. They were discouraged. Some of them maybe were at the point of even giving up. They were being persecuted. Some of them maybe even had begun to fall away to deny their confession. Now, the author of Hebrews in the first 10 chapters has explained to us very clearly that those who abandon their confession are not Christians who lose their salvation. Rather, they're people that come to church and they confess Christ and they taste all of the good things that are going on in the church. But when persecution comes, they abandon that confession. And so what the author of Hebrews tries to do is just exalt Jesus and, and show them who Jesus really is because he knows if they could just contemplate Christ in all of his glory, they won't want to abandon him. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is God Almighty who added humanity to his deity so that he could die in our place and forgive us of all of our sin. So this, this book just consistently exalts Christ. And simultaneously, as it exalts Christ, he also brings in these very strong exhortations, these very strong warnings. And that's actually the context of Hebrews 11, which is why I wanted to bring it up. It's this very, very harsh 
warning to not fall away in the last section of Hebrews 10. And it says that if someone rejects Jesus, if someone sees who Jesus is and and knows what he's done on the cross, but then they reject the exalted son, that's a terrifying and fearful thing. Because God will say in his anger, leave that person to me. Vengeance is mine. I will repay the one who treats my son this way. So it's this terrifying declaration of how unbelief in Christ causes God's displeasure, causes his anger. And that sort of then begs the question which the author answers in Hebrews 11, well, if unbelief causes the displeasure of God such that he will cast that person into hell, how do we do the opposite? How do we bring pleasure to God? And and the natural response is, well, if unbelief is what causes God's displeasure, then what causes God to be pleased must be faith. So that's that's where we'll be this morning. If you haven't already turned there, we'll be reading the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 11. Please follow along as I read. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's a a beautiful passage, isn't it? And uh, we're, gonna, we're just going to divide it up into two sections. Verse 1 through 3 describes faith. And verse 4 through 6 tells us the goal of faith. So first point, faith's description. Second point, faith's goal. And it starts with this sort of classic description of faith in verse 1. Most of us have it memorized. Let's try, to, let's try to notice some things. First, notice the poetry. There's these two parallel affirmations that, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So you have assurance and conviction that are parallel, and then things hoped for and things not seen are also parallel. So as we analyze these first two terms, assurance and conviction, it's interesting, they're actually very rare words in the Greek language, difficult to translate. Uh, some of you maybe um, from days of old have the King James Version still kind of uh, stuck in your mind. It read, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. You think, wow, that's, that sounds a little bit different. Assurance, substance? Conviction is evidence? Why, why the difference? Well, I, I think the ESV translators are, are trying to not sort of communicate a, a false idea here. But it it really is a difficult job sometimes of translating concepts that that don't come over easily from one language to another. But 
but I want to try to work with you a little bit from the context to try to figure out what these words mean. Substance. Faith is the substance of things to hope for. You know, what is substance? Substance is, substance is an objective concept. It's something that you can, you can touch and you can taste and you can feel. And an interesting parallel occurs in Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 3, where it says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the substance of God, the exact imprint of the nature of God. And it's the same term, the same word. So if we think about that sort of analogy, you have God, God's nature is invisible. We can't see it, can't touch it, can't taste it, if you will. But, but Jesus is the, the visible, tangible imprint of God. Because if we've seen Jesus, according to Jesus in John 14, if we've seen him, we've seen who? We've seen the Father. So it's, it's not that Jesus is something different than the Father. He's simply bringing into view something that we otherwise could not see. And faith is like that, right? Faith allows us to see and perceive things that otherwise would be invisible without faith. There are things that are actually real and of substance, but that we can't see without faith. It's almost like, I don't know if you've ever put on those 3D glasses, and you're looking at an image before it, and, and you don't see much, and all of a sudden you put on the glasses, and boom, it just jumps out at you. It's not that it, it created something, it's that it enabled you to see something that you couldn't see before. And the thing that you couldn't see before, according to the text, is that faith is the substance of, of things hoped for, things that, that we're longing for, future promises that God has made to us. I think the idea, as we contrast this, is that the unbeliever, when the unbeliever hears that, that God has promised an inheritance to those who love him, when the unbeliever hears about a new heaven and a new earth, where righteousness dwells, when the unbeliever hears about reigning with Christ upon a new earth, he scoffs at those things. He laughs at those things because he can't touch them. He can't see them. He doesn't know that they're real. But through faith, we hear those things. We hear about a new heaven and a new earth. We hear about the new Jerusalem. We read the description of the new Jerusalem in, in the book of Revelation, and it's like we're there. It's like we can touch it. Because we know that it has substance. We know that it's real. I can't touch it yet. But through faith, through the gift of God, I know that it's real. So faith, it takes all these promises in the Bible, promises that are like shadows, and helps us to see their substance in Christ. Helps us to see Christ in all of his splendor. And I think that's why the ESV translates it assurance. Because assurance is when the believer knows that these things are real. They have substance, and I'm assured of that. In addition, the author adds that faith is the conviction of things not seen. And again, this word conviction literally is evidence. Evidence of things not seen. It's a legal term. I'm not a lawyer, but I pulled out a dictionary to get some terms to familiarize myself a little bit. And the idea would be, you know, if we're in a courtroom and the defendant is accused of maybe breaking and entering, stealing something at a certain property, and he claims, I've never been in that property. I've never been there. 
Well, prosecution apparently has no case because there's no witnesses. Nobody saw it. So you're kind of stuck in this situation until, out of nowhere, the prosecution presents what? They present evidence. They found some hairs, and the hairs match the DNA of the person being accused, and now we all come to the right conclusion that this man is guilty. In the same way, faith evidences realities that our physical eyes cannot see. And this is so important because the author is presenting faith not as something subjective and irrational. It is presenting faith as something that's objective and very logical. Faith is rational. It is the only logical explanation for the evidence that is presenting itself to us. And our author kind of explains how this works in verse 3, if you jump down with me. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, By faith we understand. That word understand is the mind. Through logic we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. This is a, a really big point in the Bible. Paul says in Romans 1 that God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived through the things that he has made. So the believer, he, he wakes up in the morning and he sees the sunrise with his eyes. He sees the, the fading moon. He sees the clouds. He sees the trees. He hears the birds chirping. He starts to think about this universe. And he says, I can't observe who created all of this. I can't see the one who sustains all this. But I know that someone is sitting on the throne of this universe. Someone is doing this. Why? Because through faith I see the evidence of his handiwork. Someone is doing this. This could not have appeared out of nothing. That is what would be irrational. So faith is the evidence that sees invisible realities behind the physical. You think, well, that's, that's not easy. Well, it's not easy to the natural man. Because the natural man without the Spirit cannot see these things. God is the one who has to give that faith to help us to see His work. The natural man suppresses all that evidence because he loves his sin. And I would beg you, if you can wake up in the morning and see the sunrise and not see God's handiwork in it, you need to beg God for more faith. Because it's there, the evidence is screaming out that God has done this. Faith is what allows us to see. Well, as we continue on in verse 2, the author adds... That faith is something that everyone, all the people of God, all the ancients of old, had. It's through it they received their commendation. Right? There's only one way to please God, according to the author of Hebrews, that's through faith. And he says, look, you started Genesis 1 and you run all the way to the present. Everyone who ever pleased God in the history of mankind has done it. One way, by faith. 
By faith, Abel. By faith, Noah. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. There's only one way to please God, and that's through faith. That's by faith. God is the one who gives this commendation. God is the one who includes these people in our Bible to commend them for having pleased him through faith. I'd love to to kind of give a a little bit of a survey of um, all the different qualities and characteristics of uh, these people in Hebrews 11. We don't have time for that. But let me, just, let me just make a few quick observations of why the, the people that end up in this chapter are here as a little bit of a survey before we continue on. And the first point, and I'm so glad that Demo read the end part of Hebrews 11, because the very first and most important point about this list is that nobody on this list receive the promises of God in this life. Nobody. The the sort of crowning statement in this chapter is that having been commended by their faith, none of these men receive the promises. Everybody dies believing in this chapter because nobody gets the inheritance here. The inheritance is something you get after you die. So every one of these men is marked by the characteristic of having believed until the end, having persevered in faith until the end. But I think it's important to emphasize that, especially in our day and age, because we live in a a world in which whether you turn on the TV and hear a televangelist or you hear some sort of charismatic preacher, we're told that faith is the means through which we receive health and wealth and prosperity and your best life now. And if that were true, then the chapter that exalts the heroes of the faith, these men of faith, you would expect that this would be a chapter filled with wealth and filled with health and filled with prosperity. And instead you read it and they were tortured and they were mistreated and they were mocked and flogged and martyred. Because faith is not the means by which we get our best life now. Faith is the means by which we hope in our best life later. Right? The new heaven and the new earth. Another observation is that faith in Hebrews 11 is known by its works. We understand there's a difference between faith and works. We're saved by faith, not through works. But faith in the Bible always works. And so if we ask ourselves, how is it that this author knows that Noah had faith? Is it because Genesis says that Noah had faith? He says, I know that Noah had faith because he built an ark (laughs) when rain didn't even exist. How do we know that Abraham had faith? Because he sacrificed his son. How do we know that Moses had faith? Because he refused to call himself the son of the daughter of Pharaoh and preferred the mistreatment with the people of God. Don't tell me about your faith, according to Scripture. Show me your faith by what you do. And lastly, um, we should note that the chapter divisions in the Bible are human additions, right? Right? I think it would be a disservice to the argument of this book 
to see this hall of faith ending at the end of chapter 11 because he doesn't want us to consider Moses and consider Abraham. The, the climactic example of a man of faith is in Hebrews 12. And that's Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He had assurance of things hoped for. So he is the example, and he is the one that we ought to consider. Well, let's, let's continue on verse 3. Not only then, as we've seen, verse 1, faith enables us to see that our future inheritance is real. It characterized every individual commended by God in verse 2. And now, it's the common reality for all people. Verse 3, notice, faith is something common to, to man. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Author's not starting his list of faith yet. He's still describing what faith is, what it's like. And he gives this illustration that's just perfect, especially for the first century. He says, look, faith is observing evidence and coming to the right conclusion. And by faith, we know that the world was created by the word of God. And the question is, well, were you there? I mean, if you're a first century Jew, like, how did all this come to be? Well, God created. How do you know that? Were you there? Did you witness it? Did you see it? It's like, no. Because even if you were there, it wouldn't have helped. Because God spoke it into existence by his word. and just appeared. So being there wouldn't have helped that much. But did we see it? No. So the other Hebrews essentially argues, how is it that you understand that the worlds were created by the word of God? Well, you see everything around you. You read what Genesis 1 says, and you say the most logical explanation for how this all came to be is that God made it through his word. You know, the Hebrew says, do the same thing that you're doing there with the past, do that with the future. Where you take evidence, you look at God's faithfulness to his promises that he's never failed you. He's never broken a single promise to you. Look at the way that God describes the world. Look at Matthew 24, how Jesus describes exactly how all the events were going to transpire after his death. And every one of them is fulfilled exactly as he said. Take a look at the evidence and come to the right conclusion about your future. That God will give an inheritance to those who trust in his son. The point is, whether it's first century, whether it's today, a lot of people might believe in evolution tonight, today, deny that, but they believe other things without seeing it. They believe that the world is spherical. They've never been up to space. They've never seen it. But they, they take evidence, photographs, videos, whatever, they take evidence and they come to the right conclusion. That's faith. Faith is something that's common to man. In fact, even demons believe. But the point is, general faith is not enough, is it? Demons aren't saved. 
There has to be a specific goal to our faith. It needs to be a specific type of faith. And that's what the author is going to explain to us in these last three verses. The goal of our faith as a Christian must be to please God. So before we jump into these last three verses, notice, just notice the emphasis. Verse 4, Abel was commended by God. Verse 5, Enoch pleased God. Verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. Now, you, sometimes we make things so complicated in, in Christianity. You take a, take a step back and, and look at the bigger picture. Like, why did God create us? Why do we exist? What are we even doing here? And the biblical answer is, we exist to bring pleasure to our creator. That is the only reason why we're here. And that, that just sort of makes sense, right? Have you ever made something? And I was thinking of an illustration uh, yesterday. Our daughter loves to be artistic. She paints and draws things. and She'll often kind of draw something, and she really likes it. And then for whatever reason, the boys come in, and they kind of destroy it or Something happens to that painting, and it ceases, it stops pleasing her. And what does she do in that moment? She just throws it away. Just throw it in the trash, because it has ceased to fulfill the only function for which it existed, which was to bring pleasure to its author. Without faith, it is impossible to do the only thing that we exist to do. The only reason we were created is to please God. Without faith, we can't do that one singular thing that we exist to do. Without faith, there's nothing. And it's always been this way. It's always been this way. And that's what the author is going to show us starting from Genesis 4 with Abel. That all men of God, all women of God from the beginning of time had their singular ambition to please God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. Our singular focus, our singular passion is to live our lives in a way that brings pleasure to our Creator. So he wants to show us this, that these men sought to please their God, and the only way they could do that is by faith. Now, here's the interesting thing. You go back to Genesis and you start reading. You read about Abel, you read about Enoch and Noah and Abraham, Moses. Does the book of Genesis, does the Old Testament, does, he, does it say that, that Abel had faith? It doesn't, doesn't mention that. So the author of Hebrews is going to have to demonstrate to us, by his own definition of faith, that these men were men of faith. He needs to show us, if he's a man of any integrity, he needs to show us, when he says, by faith, Abel, he needs to show us that Abel was assured of things hoped for and that Abel was certain of things that he couldn't see. Well, how does he do that? Well, he's just going to take the text of Genesis 4 and he's going to do some exegesis. He's going to show us what's there. So first off, he says that Abel offered up a sacrifice to God Sacrifice just like God had made in Genesis 3. And then God accepted it. 
God received it. It was a more excellent offering than Cain's offering, and so God accepted. You say, okay, more excellent in one way. There's a lot of debate here about why Abel's offering was better than Cain's offering. Some, some say that Abel's was a blood sacrifice. Cain was at the fruit of the ground. Some notice that, that Abel offered of the first fruits of his flock and of the fat portions, and Cain just brings some fruit. He doesn't bring the first fruits. But the text really doesn't say in, in Genesis 4. And it's not really the point of Hebrews 11. The point of Hebrews 11 is that God accepted Abel's sacrifice because Abel sacrificed to him by faith, whereas Cain did not. And the question again is, okay, why is it that we know that Abel brought his sacrifice believing in things he couldn't see? Well, I mean, do you bring your best animal do you select your very best animal and bring it and slaughter it to the Lord if you don't think he even sees it? Do you slaughter your best animal if, if you don't think he's going to be pleased by that, if you're not seeking to please him? If you don't think that he is and is a rewarder of those who seek him? Do you do that? No, you don't. And furthermore, the text is very clear that God accepted Abel because of his sacrifice. Jump over to, to Genesis 4 with me. This is an important point. Genesis 4, 4. Keep your finger in Hebrews 11. Jump over to Genesis 4, 4. And Moses writes there in, in Genesis 4, 4 that Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And now pay close attention to this phrase. And Yahweh, the Lord, had regard for Abel and his offering. Literally, Yahweh accepted Abel and his offering. That's the exact point that we're seeing in Hebrews 11.4, if you turn back with me. That God commended Abel and accepted his sacrifice. Now, here's the point. It's a theological conclusion that the author of Hebrews comes to. It says, the fact that Yahweh, Jehovah, in all his burning holiness, looked upon a sinful man, Abel, and accepted him, and accepted his offering and had regard for him, means something. It means that God had counted Abel as righteous. Because righteousness is the only thing that our God accepts and has regard for. And if God accepted Abel and counted him as righteous, our author knows that Abel must have made his offering through faith. And that's the same thing that we see throughout this chapter of Hebrews 11. If you turn back now to Hebrews 11, in verse 7, he's going to say the exact same thing about Noah. Notice what it says in Hebrews eleven seven, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And then it says this, By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes how? By faith. So this author looks at Noah, says, Noah built an ark. Why does Noah build an ark? 
Because he's assured of things hoped for. Because he can perceive things that he can't see with his physical eyes. And if he's doing that, it's because he has faith. And if he has faith, that pleases God to the point that God is going to declare him as righteous. This is the pattern of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Jesus saw the exact same thing because in Matthew 23, he calls Abel righteous Abel. Not because Genesis 4 calls Abel righteous, but because Jesus could read the text and see that Abel had faith. And he knew that God is pleased by that faith and justifies men because of that faith. Do you see the power of faith in this text? In, in our world, in our generation, we talk a lot about the power of faith. Lots of churches talk about the power of faith, and they're talking about tongues and, and miracles and all kinds of weird stuff. But do you see the power of faith? By faith, we can please the one who made us. That is a remarkable idea. That is a remarkable idea. It enables us filthy, wicked, sin-stained creatures to bring satisfaction to the heart of the one who made us. That's, that's inconceivable. What a gift. What a gift God has given us in faith. And that's why this author is setting up these men as examples for us to follow because it's as if, he, it's as if he's telling us, don't you want to be like them? When you read that Abel could please his God, doesn't your heart burn within you at the thought of bringing pleasure to the heart of God? The thought that God would look down on Josiah and that I could please him? There is nothing more than that in this life. There is no greater aspiration. There is no greater ambition in this life than to bring pleasure to him. And what a thought in light of our depravity, in light of our unworthiness, that through the gift of faith, we could please God. And Abel is doing it to this day, right? He's testifying to us of this amazing reality. It says, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. He's still telling us of the wonder of doing what he was created to do. But it gets even better. Look at verse 5. Enoch, it says, was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. It's like, okay, well, okay, author of Hebrews, how do you know? How do you know that Enoch pleased God? How do you know that he had faith? <laughs> Enoch pleased God so much that God looked down, smiled upon Enoch so much that he said, come here. You know, just, just come here. I, I'm tired of this distance that separates us. I'm tired of seeing you dealing with the unrighteousness that surrounds you. Just, it'd be better if you just come home. And Enoch didn't have to experience physical death. Such was his ability to please God through this gift of faith. Right? Sometimes the, the Christian life is, is more simple than it 
than we try to make it out to be. You say, okay, but, but Genesis doesn't say that Enoch had faith and he pleased God. What does it say? Well, it just says that he walked with God. It just says he walked with God. But let's think about that. When Moses writes to us in Genesis that Enoch walked with God, what does that imply? What is he saying? Well, we know he's not walking with God physically like Adam did because the Bible calls Enoch a prophet, someone who prophesied against the unrighteousness of his day. A prophet is someone who speaks for God when God's not there. So Enoch's not physically walking with God. He's spiritually walking with God. What does that mean? It means Enoch is going about his day trusting that God is walking beside him. If faith is believing that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him, that's what Enoch's doing, is it not? He's assured of something he can't see. He knows that God's walking beside him and he's seeking to live his life in a way that's pleasing to him. And you see, that's, that's the very first step in pleasing God. And the contrast of that is that the, the very first step in, in displeasing God is to deny that. Is to deny that God is. Deny that God exists. You say, oh, Josiah, but I... I wouldn't deny that God exists. I wouldn't deny that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. But don't we? The first step to every one of our sins, is it not to deny that he's with us? Because how could you sin if you knew, if you were assured of the fact that God was right beside you, walking beside you? How could you hold a grudge if you thought that God was reading your heart? How could you lie if you knew that God was listening to you? How could you look at pornography if you knew that God was sitting right next to you? It's inconceivable. Because the very first thing that we do when we sin is to convince ourselves that God is not here and that God doesn't care what I do. Because now I've just denied that God is and that he's a rewarder of them who seek him. Unbelief is the mother of all sins, which is why God hates it so very much and why God commends faith to us so significantly. Unbelief in the character and nature of God is a heinous offense to him. That's why he says in verse 6 that without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to him must believe these things, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's not optional. It's impossible to please him without faith. If you want to draw near to God, draw near is a technical term the author of Hebrews has used seven times in this book. It means to worship God, to to dwell with him in the Holy of Holies. It's another way of saying if you're saved, you're going to do this. Because if you don't live in the Holy of Holies, if you're not drawing near to God to worship him... It's because you don't have access to the Holy of Holies and you don't have access to the Holy of Holies because you're still in your sin because you don't believe in the once for all sacrifice that Jesus made for us. So if you want to draw near and be in God's presence, in other words, if you want to be saved, you must believe these two things, that he is, that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Now the first thing that I want you to notice is how he in this verse, ties everything back to verse 1. It's kind of a logical sandwich here. 
Remember in verse 1 we saw that faith is the assurance of what? Of things hoped for. And what are we hoping for? We're hoping for a God to reward us. He's the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And faith in verse 1 is also the conviction of things not seen. And what is it that we do not see? That God is. We don't see God, that he exists. So this is the essence of faith. Faith is believing that God is, though we do not see him, and that he will reward us, even though that is a future reality that we cannot observe. We can't see it. It hasn't taken place yet. This first point that God is, is incredibly simple yet incredibly profound. You must believe that God, literally that God is. That's his name. The great I am. That's his essence. Eternally, unchangeably existing. Isn't it true that Though it sounds so simple just to believe that he is, that it's so hard for us as Christians, even as Christians, even as saved, it's so hard just to, to go about our day and do what Enoch did, to walk with the conviction that God is, that he exists, he needs nothing, but he's right here beside me. Because if we actually did that, like, could you wake up in the morning and not say good morning to him if he's right there with you? Could you go about your day and live the whole day without talking to him, without telling him things, without praising him, without thanking him? Like, the fact that you do that demonstrates the fact that you have voluntarily denied his existence. You are living your life pretending that he's not right there with you. How could we breathe without giving thanks to the one who gave us that breath, if we believe that he is. But it's not just that he is, it's that he is and that he is a rewarder. Now I want to just note real quick that translations read a little bit differently here. Some translations say that he rewards, some that he is a rewarder. I think there is a difference. There's a difference between saying Someone gives occasionally, and someone who is by nature a giver. And the text is affirming here that God is by nature a rewarder. That's an important point, is it not? Giving is not just something God does, it's what God is. It's in his nature. And so if someone would ask, but, but how do I know for sure that if I trust in Jesus today, that in the future when I die, that, that God will give me the inheritance. The biblical answer is because he's God. And that is who he is. He is a God merciful and gracious. His grace overflows from him. He loves to give grace. And that's going to provide a little bit of contrast for us for this last phrase where we'll conclude this morning. That God is, and he's a rewarder, but not for everyone. Because he's a rewarder for them who seek him. You have to seek him. You think, wow, you kind of just popped my bubble. I mean, it sounded real good that God's going to 
love everyone and give grace to everyone. But now I, I got to seek him. Yeah, you have to repent of your sins and choose to seek after God. And those of us who have been studying theology for a while, we read that and all of a sudden some theological bells and whistles start to go off, don't they? Like, okay, God's going to just pour out his grace upon everyone who seeks him. That word seek only occurs a few times in the New Testament. Here and a very common other place in Romans 3 that tells us how many people actually seek God. Remember what Hebrews 3, 10 and 11 says? How many people seek God? No, not one. Not even one. So it's like, wait a second. You got this wonderful news, this gospel news that God loves to reward. He loves to give his grace to everyone that seek him. And how many seek him? Zero. It's like, well, what are we going to do with this fact that God is saying by nature he loves to reward people, but he's not going to be able to do that with anyone? Well, that's the marvel of his grace. It's like it was just welling up with inside of him, and he had to give it to someone. And since no one on earth was worthy to receive that grace, he sends his son into the world to die in man's behalf, to forgive us of our sins. He sends us his Holy Spirit to enable us to seek him so that he could reward and give us grace. That is amazing news. That people as unworthy and depraved and full of sin like us would be the beneficiaries of a God who is eternally existing, eternally existing to reward and give grace to all by, through his grace, have come to seek him. 